Welcome to episode 122. Today, Dr. Brenda Custodio talks about her co-written book called Slife, Bridging Where They Are and What They Need. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. For the intro, I'd like to read to you the book description. Under the best of circumstances, the academic demands of today's classrooms can be daunting to our English learners. But for the tens of thousands of newly arrived students with interrupted formal education, even the social challenges can be outright overwhelming. Rely on this all-in-one guide by Dr. Brenda Custodio and Dr. Judith O'Loughlin for expert insight on how to build the skills these students need for success in the school and beyond. In this book, you'll find essential background on factors leading to interrupted education, specific focus on refugee children and Latino students, guidance on building internal resilience for long-term social and emotional health, and finally, recommendations for creating supportive environments at the classroom, the school, and the district level. Now, on to today's podcast. It's my honor to introduce Dr. Brenda Custodio to right. you on the podcast. He is a colleague, uh, a fellow colleague, a, a facilitator on English Learner Portal, but you're also one of the leading experts uh, with students who have in f formal interrupted formal interrupted education. So it is right. so great to have you. Welcome, Dr. Custodio. So let's start with our first question. Uh, tell us a story that has really changed your practice. Well, as I was thinking about this, there's probably two things that uh, impacted me. My first major ESL job, I started out being an English and history teacher. Um, and then I had two children and I stopped teaching for a little while. And then when I came back, um, I found out that there was this thing called ESL, which I I hadn't even heard of when I was in college because I'm a little old and the, uh, the school district said, Oh yeah, we, we need some people to teach ESL. And I goes, great. That's perfect. That was what I would like to do. So they sent me to a middle school and I was not very happy because I had always worked at high school level. And I thought, Oh, I don't want to do middle school. It actually ended up being the best 10 years of my career. Um, and I had a fantastic bilingual assistant. She was from Cambodia and she had been there before I uh, took this position. So I started doing things the same way I had done it with high school. And so she would gently say, it's not working very well with these middle school kids. You know? And she was so sweet and you know, so self-deprecating, but she was, just, she, she was spot on, she was right. Um, she said, we need to do more with children's books and so on. So she really uh, turned my teaching techniques into more of the uh, 
uh, student-centered teaching and so on. So that is one thing. And while I was at that middle school, um, we started getting a lot of Somali refugees into my city of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we now have the second largest Somali population in the United States. Minneapolis is first and Columbus, Ohio is second. Uh, so I have, was used to having a lot of Cambodian students who had mainly been born in the U.S. Their family had come over here after um, uh, Southeast Asia War, and they were behind in reading, but their English was good. Um, I was really more like a reading teacher for them. So it, you know, but then when I started getting these Somali students who had spent years in a refugee camp, very little, if any, education. And it was a whole different world for me. So it opened up the world of students with interrupted schooling for me. Um, and then I went from there to helping to start a newcomer program in my city. And that's where I got even more experience on working with uh, students with interrupted schooling. So, so those two things influenced me. <laughs> well, that Cambodian uh, teaching assistant is so brave because uh, without her voice, I mean, those students would have not, we wouldn't have grown, right? And so this is the power right. of like co-teaching together. Yes, yes, she was. And she has since become a teacher herself. Uh, she spent probably 15 years slowly going through the uh, junior college and then a university. And then she got a, a master's degree in teaching. And now she's wanting to start a bilingual uh, Khmer English school here in Columbus. So she's, she's working on that. I'm not sure exactly where she is in the process, but she called me last summer and that was one thing that she, one of her dreams. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. That would be so great to have a Khmer bilingual school. Cause we yeah. know the power of bilingualism and right. not just, uh, transitioning students into English and inadvertently out of their, uh, first language. Yes. Yeah. So tell us about this book. This is one of four books that you've written. What was the seed for this book? Uh, well, it started with those Somali students that started coming to my middle school because that's the first time I had worked with a large group of students that had very little, if any, uh, educational experience. And then when I moved to the uh, newcomer program that I helped to set up, I saw the issues that these students have. Um, we had a middle and a high school together in one building. And we had students who were 18 and 19 years old who had never read a book, never held a pencil. Um, and we were trying to get them ready to graduate. <laughs> Some were able to do it, many were not because the challenge was just too much. But if we got them young enough or we were allowed to keep them long enough, um, they were able, we were able to get them to graduate. So it was, it was a challenge, but it was not impossible. And I think that's where the idea for the book came from. So, Right. I love how you said this. It was challenging, but it wasn't yeah. impossible, right? And so I think it's right. all about teachers' perspectives. If they believe that it's possible, we'll, make, we'll create the conditions for students to achieve. Right. right. Well, it wasn't just the teachers. I think most of the teachers were very uh, willing to put in the extra work. Yes. But our system is not designed for these students. So even though we had a special school for them and the, the school district that I worked in uh, supported this and allowed us to do it, the, the state said, you know, we need to, um, you're gonna be graded on how well these students can test on the state tests, 
how well the students can graduate in a four-year time period. So they were using the same criteria to rate our school that they rated, you know, a, a private school with, you know, all upper class students. So it, it was really uh, not fair to the students. And then the students themselves got frustrated because they would say, well, you know, I'm the same age as my cousin and he's going to graduate this year. Why am I still in 10th grade instead of 12th? And we would say, you know, you, you, you're not ready yet to be taking uh, physical science and algebra two. <laughs> you you got to take the baby steps. And, and they got frustrated with that because, you know, they, they had adult bodies, but they were almost like second and third grade in their academic skills. And they it was a real gap that we were trying to, to fill. Let's go chapter by chapter. Your first chapter is an introduction to SLIFE. Can you tell us about uh, who they are and your definition? Okay. Well, we looked at uh, other people who had studied SLIFE clear back to the 90s. There were some studies done on newcomer programs. And then uh, Freeman and Freeman wrote a book called Closing the Achievement Gap. They call them limited formal schooling students. Um, New York City was actually the first organization and that um, recognized these students formally and gave them this acronym of SIF, Students with Interrupted Formal Schooling. Um, so we went back and looked at that and they all defined these students as two or more years uh, of interrupted schooling, often limited first language um, literacy. They obviously can speak their language, but many, some of these kids have had um, little or no education like the Somali students that I was getting. And often they're behind or at least have gaps in their math, their science or social studies. I even had students with gaps in art. We had students who had never used scissors and glue <laughs> at the high school level. So, you know, we were going back and doing those fine motor skills. They, they would have trouble holding a pencil because they hadn't done it and it would hurt their hand to have to hold a pencil for so long. So there's things that you don't even think about um, of, you know, when you have a student who's gone through from preschool all the way up, and now you have somebody jumping right into the education system uh, at 16 or 18 years old. It's, it's, very difficult. Di it's quite difficult. In one of your chapters, you talked about uh, Latino students with interrupted mm -hmm. education. So I thought that, wow, this is very pertinent because we have a lot of Latino or Latinx students that come to America uh, mm -hmm. with uh, interrupted education. Right. Um, and the main group that we're talking about here are our recent arrivals. Those are the ones who have interrupted schooling. Uh, obviously, we have probably 20% of the population in the U.S. have um, Hispanic roots, but the ones who have been here for a long time, some of them were actually here before uh, white Americans entered their, their domain. Um, but the students who are recent arrivals, mainly coming from Central America and some now coming from Venezuela because of the issues there. So these are the students that we're seeing with the interrupted schooling. Um, and they have unique issues because they have experienced uh, gang and drug violence in Central America, which is what is pushing them out of their home. And then they see the US as their savior. You know, here's a place where I can get a job, be safe. 
um, maybe meet up with other family members that are already here. So we have the push factors out of their home country and then the pull factors into the US. Um, and then we talk about what kind of issues those students have. Um, you know, they've all seen trauma. Um, many of them tried this journey two or three times, got uh, stopped somewhere along the line and, and come back. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book about um, Enrique's journey. Yes. Yeah. So those students who've had that kind of experience, I mean, we just can't imagine what it's like for these students coming on their own as unaccompanied minors. Um, so yeah, it's, they, have, they have challenges. Many of them are not here documented. So they have additional immigration issues. So, you know, we, we're trying to find ways. So you can't just talk about the academic issues of these children. We, we try to hook them up with an immigration lawyer if possible. We try to um, find supports like food or housing um, because they don't qualify for the kinds of supports that a refugee would have. So they need um, social service issues, social service supports as well. What do you, so you, you mentioned some things that are different about Latinx and Lat Latino students. Uh, what other differences between those students and the other refugees or immigrant students? Um, well, the refugees, they come in and they've already uh, been approved to be here. So the minute they step off the airplane, they qualify for uh, health insurance. They qualify for um, support with getting an apartment. They have somebody who will work with them for six to eight months on their language skills, um, helping them to find jobs and you know, work, getting them if they need um, they've had trauma background, getting them together with some kind of support system. Um, our, our Latinos don't have that. So it's, it's, there's a, you know, refugees have their own issues, <laughs> but they're, they're different from the Latino issues. Does that, does, do the differences show up in their schooling experience? Sometimes the refugees are much more likely to have a much bigger gap. Um, I've never, well, no, I've had one Latino father who couldn't even write his name. He had to literally put an X. Oh. But most of our Latino students, they've had some schooling, three years, five years, eight years. Um, in most areas of Latin America, you only are required to go to school up to the eighth grade. Right. Right. So compulsory education will end at the end of middle school. So a lot of these kids, if they stay that long, um, at least have that much of a background. So they do have a gap, but it's not the huge gap that a refugee child would have. So the kids who've been in uh, for years in refugee camps, some of them have not been to school at all. If they've been to school, it might've been outside two days a week. There might've been no textbooks. Uh, you might have an untrained teacher. I mean, they just have more academic issues. And some of the, um, people who have done studies on refugees says it's pretty much 100% of our refugees have trauma yeah. because you know they were forced out of their home, forced into a camp somewhere. The average time in a refugee camp before resettlement is 17 years. So a lot of our children were born in a camp and don't even know their home country. Yeah, so they, they have issues of their own. 
Yeah, I remember that statistic when I read uh, Joe Napolitano's book, The School I Deserve. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I was like, 17 years? I thought it was like, oh, two or three years, because I'm a refugee. And we yeah. stayed in the Philippines for two, almost three years. Yes. 17. I was like, wow. Yeah. yeah, I was talking to a Vietnamese friend of mine, and he knew I was an ESL teacher, and I was telling him what I do. And I says, how long did you have? And he was saying he'd been in the Philippines for, I think, maybe a year and a half or something. I said, do you know how long uh, families now have before they leave the camp to come to the U.S.? A week. <laughs> One week. So tell us about what's unique. What are the unique issues that SLIFE students experience? Well, obviously, the academic gaps, um, the trauma that almost all of them are facing, um, different kinds of trauma, but still things that they have to deal with, you know, with themselves, with their families. Um, they're much more likely to drop out, probably like 10 times more likely to drop out than, than a typical ESL student. Yeah. They're not like the other ESL students. You know, when we think about a typical ESL student, we focus on, um, helping them to develop their reading and writing skills. And obviously that is something they need, but you have to go almost back for a lot of these kids to um, the alphabet and the numbers and the, the pre-K and K primary skills, but you have to do it quickly. <laughs> You've got to take a 15 year old from pre-K to third grade in a year. Um, and it's, it's a challenge. How, and based upon your research, what are ways we could do that? Well, one of the things that we did at my school that really worked well is our um, ESL coordinator, the supervisor of the program, brought in some retired elementary school teachers. And those kids, three days a week, they would sit in little guided reading groups with these teachers and they would work their way through uh, picture books and sight words and um, uh, calligraphy, you know, everything that, that you would typically, typically do in a primary class, but they did it with materials that were appropriate for the age. So you can find social studies and science books that are written at like first grade, second grade reading level with lots of pictures, lots of visuals. So they're learning content at the same time that they're learning um, literacy. That was, that was one of the best things I've found. Right. So start small. I yesterday I interviewed Dr. Andrea de Capua and she said mm -hmm. it's very similar to the Russian dolls. Like you yeah. start with a little Russian doll and then you go to the yep. next next and next, but you always contextualize it with some in, within something the students already are familiar with, like right. their food or their clothing. So one of your chapters is also about how to develop social emotional support for a slide. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Right. Well, one of the things that uh, my co-author and I, Judith and Lachlan, that we found was it's really important that we do routines with students. Um, in fact, we, we did two workshops yesterday for two different conferences, and we did the same, same workshop on trauma. And we were talking about the impact of routines on students with trauma because they've been in situations where they had no control um, they're not sure what's going to happen next. They're uh, constantly afraid. So if you can help them to feel calm, 
uh, and safe. And this is what's going to happen next. And then this is what's going to happen next. And we're going to give you a choice of these two or three things. So they feel um, some power, but they also feel comfortable. And you need to combine those two things. Um, so there's different ways that you can do that. One of the things that we found is the morning meetings that you used to do mainly with um, primary age groups, but I've seen it done with high school. And you just bring the students, you talk about what happened over the weekend, you talk about what's going on in the school today. Um, you know, this is how maybe put them together with a buddy. This is how a lunchroom works. This is how the cafeteria works, how the gym works. So just to give them um, a heads up of what's coming, because a lot of them, especially the ones that have experienced trauma, they have these triggers. So if they hear bells or if they are in crowds, um, they, they panic. So if we can help them to realize this is coming, it's only going to last a couple minutes, you know, just kind of the way a mother talks to a child, but obviously at, at a higher um, maturity level, but just to help them know, you know, we're, you're here, you're safe, we're taking care of you, you don't have to be afraid. Right. That's so important because they're coming, they're leaving their place of residence before, right? coming to right. a new place, new culture, not knowing the language, not right. knowing the systems, and not right. knowing the customs, then going to schooling, maybe possibly for the first time or uh, returning to school after an interruption. And the schooling system in America is quite different. And so there are all these stressors because things right. are unfamiliar. And so when we create a, a stable system, a recurring system for them, it really right. helps with the routines and it really helps with lowering right. their uh, effective filter. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that they're unfamiliar with is our um, the power that we give to students. Right. You know, we have a lot of group work um, we allow them to choose what they want to read in certain circumstances. Um, we don't have the, uh, I'm the teacher, you're the student, you know, line up in rows, the kinds of things that a lot of the students have been familiar with in their school system in their home country. And they see what we do as um, too much freedom. <laughs> so sometimes they'll go the other way, you know, I can do whatever I want. Uh, no, we have structure. It's just a different kind of structure. So it takes them a while to get into that new routine of, you know, yes, you have some freedom, but it has boundaries as well. So let's end with our your last chapter, which is about okay. the school based supports. Okay, tell us about those. Uh, well, Judy and I did a lot of research on uh, visiting different newcomer programs and so on to see what uh, other places were doing. So one of the things we found that works really well with our SIFE students is a, a school-based health clinic because especially for the students who are undocumented and don't have um, health insurance, they can get services, even dental services and vision and those kinds of things right there in the school. Uh, one of the things my school nurse said that she found issues with was if they had um, a physical issue, the parents would take them to get that issue addressed, but they wouldn't do the follow-up yeah. because they didn't understand or they had not been introduced to um, going to the doctor for wellness checkups. Right. Or yes, you've taken your TB medicine, 
but now that you need to go back to the doctor and make sure it's working, you know, I took my medicine, I'm done. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so different from what they're used to, especially for refugees who've had very little healthcare um, experiences. So that's one thing. Um, another thing I've seen that we had in, in my school was we actually had caseworkers in the school system that would work with students, connecting the student and the family with social services. Um, and they were people that spoke the language and were from the cultures of the families. So they would say, you know, this is a place where you can go and somebody will speak Somali or this place you can go and they will speak Arabic. And then they, the families were more comfortable going to a place where they could talk about their issues. Um, so those kinds of things. Um, after school programs, Saturday programs, uh, summer school programs, because one of the things that these students need more than anything is time. Yes. You know, yes. they're missing so much schooling and there's only so many days, you know, so many hours in a day. So if you could do after school programming or Saturday program, it does give those students that extra time that they need. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you want to add about working with Slife Kids before we go to the closing activity? Um, I just want to reiterate uh, Debbie Zakarian's idea that you know, we need to look at our students from the assets-based approach and that they don't, you know, we, we focus a lot on what they need and what they don't have, but they come with so much. Um, they have experienced things and survived experiences that we just can't even imagine. Um, so they do have strengths and they do have um, expertise in, in areas that we have never even had to, to fight with, you know, how to survive gang and drug violence. I, I wouldn't know where to start. Um, some of these kids, you know, literally traveled a thousand or 2000 miles on their own. And that takes a lot of uh, expertise. Um, the street, street smarts, you know, I guess is what we would call it, but you know, they know how to survive and we just need to give them the tools to be academic survivors as well as life survivors. Um, and just to show them that, you know, education here is critical if you want to be um, all that you can be, you know, you made this journey here, make it count. Um, you've got, you got opportunities but you have to take advantage of it. And, you know, we want to help you with that so we can connect you, but you've got to do your part as well. So it's, it's a, it's a partnership. Right. We want to honor with, we want to honor their endurance and their sacrifice yes. and right. their, their travel to get here to say like, Hey, you could do this. You've, you've, ne you've arrived now. Let's, right. let's work together. Yeah. What's the next step? What can we do now? What's the next step? Yeah. Right. Well, let's end with this activity. It's called red light uh, teaching. Perfectly teaching. Okay. So red light is something you ask teachers to stop doing. Yellow light <laughs> is you ask, what do you ask teachers to uh, start doing? And green light is what do you ask teachers to keep on doing? Ah, okay. Oh, I have to think about this one. <clears throat> uh, stop doing, I think, is just concentrating on what they can't do. Um, we need to think about their strengths. Um, I'm going to be doing a workshop on, on Tuesday with the school where I used to work. I'm retired now, but I'm, I'm going back and we're going to be looking at, uh, they have a large Latino population right now. 
and the principal says he's he's concerned that some of the teachers are saying well these kids are just here to work and i says so <laughs> how many immigrants came to the u.s for a job i mean for hundreds of years that's the reason they come um, so yes, they did come here to work, but while they're here, let's give them the, the tools so that they can be, uh, the best workers, the best students, the best, whatever they want to be, you know, a construction worker or a doctor, whatever we want to help them to, to meet their goals, um, and give them the toolbox that they're going to need to do it. So, you know, looking, looking at their strengths and then giving them what they need to, to keep on going for what do they start doing? Yes. I would like to see a lot of schools offer uh, support for our site that don't already do it. I, I, when we go out, when Judy and I go out and do workshops, one of the biggest things that comes up is that in at the high school level, algebra is the lowest math available. And if you have students coming in who are at second, third, fourth grade level of math skills, they're not gonna be able to survive in a math, in an algebra class. So they need some kind of a foundational math as a bridge to move them into that algebra. Um, and how you do it, I'm not sure. Some places I've seen, they do a double period of algebra. So the first semester, they can build those foundational skills. And then the second semester, they teach the actual algebra class. Um, you, you know, just building those skills. Uh, another thing is if they come without um, strong first language literacy, I think we need to go back and build those first language literacy skills as much as possible. So, you know, adding those kinds of courses, I, school districts don't like to do it because it's not the way we've always done it, but you know, these kids need that extra support and we, we need to provide it. What is something we can keep doing? The safe and welcoming environment. There's a real push now for social emotional learning. And these students need that probably more than any other student. You know, they have almost all experienced uh, trauma that we can't imagine. So if we can just provide them with, you know, we're here to help you. Uh, we care about you. We, we will do our best to understand your situation and we're going to help you to make it through. So. You know those that safe warm welcoming environment i think most teachers are trying to do that now and we need to keep on yeah. well you have been helping us do that with your co-author judith o'lachlan so thank you for spending the time to give us very quickly uh, a brief synopsis of your book but also strategies that we can implement right away before we recap this episode i have a favor and an invitation my favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, on to our recap. I'd like to end this podcast with an excerpt from Dr. Deborah Short, who wrote the foreword for the book. One of the guiding principles of effective English language teaching is for educators to know their students. 
And that, in a nutshell, captures the value of this book. The compassion that Custodio and O'Loughlin feel for our SLIFE students, the commitment they have to educating them well, and the comprehension they have of the assets these students bring to the classroom are evident in their writing, the tools, and the vignettes they share. In the next episode, we'll have Leslie Garcia join us to share examples of projects that follow the mutually adaptive learning paradigm suggested by Dr. Marshall and Dr. DeCapua. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine.